Great. Well, it's always, like I say, it's, it's always a privilege to be able to share what God has been uh, laying on uh, our team's heart over the last little bit, just talking through this idea of, of from head to heart as we uh, as Wes just shared last week about so many amazing things on on how the Holy Spirit just changing our ideas into into heart things as as he massages those in and so this this morning as as i 've been praying and, and preparing uh, a story in in the Old Testament just uh, honestly just in my prayer time. <laughs> That I believe just the Holy Spirit kind of just dropped in, and uh, I'm sure many of us have had that, where sometimes we can we can kind of just push it and brush it aside, but really just felt that God wanted to share through this story. And as I was preparing this week, I'm sure many of us are, as we look at what's happening globally. From viruses to political views to wars, there have been major tremors across the globe. And lately, I've been considering this cultural shift that has been taking shape, especially in the West. It's brought forth this this new way of thinking that it's trying to define things that God has already given the definition to. And it can be a lot, can't it, friends? There's a lot of noise, there's loud voices, there's a ton of information out there. But again, going back to God has already made these things clear. It can be, it can be difficult in today's culture, can't it, over controversial topics. But I think through this, this morning, we're going to see that we won't be enough to just keep us from being influenced or even swallowed up by our culture unless we keep God at the forefront. And as I was preparing, I was looking at examples and times where this has happened in the Bible. And I thought just to start us off this morning is, is just summarizing this part of Scripture where this transformation was taking place. That, that simply opposing everything in our society or hiding from everything isn't the answer. And if you look at Acts chapter 17, I believe Apostle Paul kind of summarizes this really well as he shows us and models how to engage with our culture with respect. In that part of scripture, Paul strolling through the streets of Athens. He's carefully observing all these gods that he sees, that he finds, he, he begins to note that, that it says in verse 22 of 17, in Acts 17, it says, formed by the art and these imagination. As we know, many of the Greek philosophers, as they debated these sort of things. But Paul also knew the literature of the local poets, that he could quote them, that he could respectfully incorporate into his preaching about Jesus Christ. A number of weeks ago, I preached about Paul and how he was immersed in his culture, how the culture of his time, he was a scholar of scholars. But what he did is he used that to point towards the amazing transformation that he had in his life because of what Christ Jesus did. Very good. 
And in Acts 17, as he's, as he's talking to the crowd, as he's talking to these intellectuals, if you would say that, he even goes to the point of saying in Acts 17, 28, that he says, even some of your own poets have said, for you too are his offspring. That he begins to talk and discuss with them that they are looking in the wrong direction, that there actually is signs pointing towards God in their own culture. And he does this in an amazing way if you continue to read through that part of Acts 17. How he discusses with them, but again, pointing them towards Christ. And as you read that, many of them want to know more because of what he has done, how he's articulated the things of Jesus through the culture of that time. And so Hugh Welch describes that Christians should actively transform culture without giving it undue prominence. Take seriously the overall biblical story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Celebrate the goodness of culture and creation, but also recognize their fallness. Take into account the effects of sin on creation, but also recognize God's desire to resolve it by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and through the church ministry. This morning, we are going to camp out in a particular point in Israel's history. So I encourage you to open your Bibles if you've brought your Bibles, or if you're looking at an electronic device, and turn to Daniel chapter 1. I think the challenge, the potential, and the reality of influencing culture is highlighted in the scripture this morning. So we're going to read Daniel chapter 1, and I'm going to read the whole chapter in its entirety. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation this morning. Chapter 1, verse 1. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylon and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Verse 3, Then King ordered Ashpenazah, his chief of staff, to bring the uh, to bring the palace, some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men. He said, make sure they are well-versed and every branch of learning are gifted with knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Verse 6. Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. 
The chief of staff renamed them with Babylonian names. Daniel was called Bethesaljar, Hannah called Shadrach, Michelle called Meshach, and Azariah called Abednego. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. We're going to highlight that verse 8 later on. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat, eat these unacceptable foods. Now God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. But he responded, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has ordered that you eat this food and wine to drink. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. Verse 11, Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. Please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water. At the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier, better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, he attended, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of food and wine provided for the others. God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings and visions and dreams. When the training period ordered by the king was complete, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. And Daniel remained in the royal service until the first year the king Cyrus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, Lord God. We thank you that there's power and there's authority when we read your word. Lord God, I just ask that as, as we've heard the words, I just pray against the enemy and the schemes that the enemy will, will try to uh, infiltrate. I pray for protection over our minds and our hearts as we've heard this word, that you would solidify your words in our hearts, Lord God. That, Father, that we want to hear from you this morning, that God is that we continue just to talk through as we continue just to hear from you during this time, I pray that you would speak boldly, Lord God. That it would be your words and not mine. And we'd be reminded of your goodness and your faithfulness through this time. Amen. I want to just for a moment paint a picture of what Babylon was like. 
If we go in uh, later down into Daniel chapter 4, we see Nebuchadnezzar talking about himself and he says this, he says, Is not this great Babylon I have built as a royal residence, my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? You see, what he did is he constructed these amazing systems and fortifications he built these, these defenses and fortresses all over his kingdom. He built temples and, and canals and, and streets, these professional-looking buildings that, that many of you maybe have seen the images of the uh, Issachar Gate. Megan and I have had the privilege of, of going to some museums in Europe where they've reconstructed these. And, and again, I was reminded of these stories as, as the Israelites would have come into this imposing place. Seeing these walls just rise up. That again, as we, we read earlier, all declaring the greatness of this king, right? Look at what I have done. Everybody, look at what we have done. That... He constructed these amazing buildings to, to again, look at their gods, to highlight their gods for places of worship in the center of the city. And many of you know, as you look through history, that he crafted these beautiful gardens for one of his wives because she missed her homeland. Even, even the Greeks that followed him later on in history thought it was such an amazing thing that what they did is they included it in those uh, world of wonders. I believe as we, we look at that part of that, the, the history of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, it's pointing towards man and how great that he thought he was. But as we know, he's missing a huge part. These details paint this picture of how important the Babylonians thought they were, how important Nebuchadnezzar thought he was. And if you look through the story of Daniel, you see much more detail of how he raises himself up, but God humbles him quite a bit if you read further in Daniel. But let's get back to, let's get back to Daniel and these young men. Daniel and these young men that were taken from Jerusalem as the Babylonians uh, broke into the city, they would have been teenagers, roughly around 16 years old. As history says, this is around the time of about 605 BC. As we read in the scriptures, as, as, as Daniel talks through it, King Nebuchadnezzar tears down the city of Jerusalem. And what he does is he gathers together all the best, the best of the best, the sharpest mind. And I find it kind of comical, the best looking, that that was kind of a criteria. And I'm curious to know what the culture of that day thought was, was good looking. As we know, our culture holds that quite high. That these young men are separated from their culture. They're separated from their traditions. They're, they're, they're separated from their families. And what they're going to do is they're going to take these young men and they're going to indoctrinate them in the ways of the Babylonians. 
working through and, and trying to replace what they once knew with what they wanted them to know. To, to re-engineer, to, to shift their thinking. Yet what I love about this piece of scripture is how, how Daniel highlights this. Often if we looked at history, when a foreign nation would go in and capture people, they wouldn't do it the way that Nebuchadnezzar is doing it. Most of the time, you would picture, in a way, people being held captive by chains, being locked away, being imprisoned for to show a sign of, of superiority, to defile people, to, to lower them in a social way. Yet Nebuchadnezzar does not do that with these young men. What he does is he gives him the best of everything. He gives them the best of technology of that day. He gives them the best literature, the best education. Everything that was best of that culture, he was giving to them, which seems odd, doesn't it? Why would you bring in these, these young men and, and kind of in a way like give them the best of everything? It seems so odd, doesn't it? But it's very important, actually. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't stop there, does he? He actually gives them the best. He, he's teaching. They're learning all this thing. But then what does he do? He actually brings them into the royal palace. And Calvin once wrote about this situation. He says this. He says, Nebuchadnezzar knew that the Jews were stiff-necked. They were obstinate people and that he, under, he used the sumptuous food to soften up the captives. You see what's happening is he's actually trying to soften them up. He's doing this to shift their minds in a much different way than, than if we look at history, I would have expected. You see, these young men could start to think that where I am at now is better than where I came from. That they could be lulled to sleep in a way because things were so good. They could be lulled into thinking that, that they weren't even in captivity. That they could forget that they were not to be a part of that culture. That they were supposed to be making a difference, but they were lulled into thinking that they weren't even in captivity. That this is actually a friendly thing. This is actually a good thing. Like, look at all this education I'm getting. I'm getting the best food. I didn't get that even when I was back home. This is good where I'm at. But when we get so blinded by the nice things of culture, we forget we were not created for this culture. We were not created for this world. That we were designed by God to make an impact on this culture. That 
that Nebuchadnezzar did this in a way because what he did is he gathered a generation of young men to change their minds, to think that, that they were just going to go into the culture and not make a difference. But if we look at verse 6, what happens? We don't know the exact number of how many young men were brought into this. But we do know that there was four that said no. Out of all the people that were gathered together, only four stood up and knew that this was not okay. Out of all the young men, only four were resolved. That they were not going to be consumed by the culture of that time. Are we willing? Are we willing to be the ones who have determined to stand? Even if it means we stand alone. It's challenging, isn't it? Yet if we continue to look down the track of Daniel's life, I'm sure many of us know the amazing stories of Daniel. That maybe many of us read those as a kid. When Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, God reveals the meaning to Daniel. That, that he's thrown into a lion's den because he does not stop praying to God. That Daniel serves under four kings in some of the highest positions ever. That, that I preached a while back about Daniel's friends being thrown into a fiery furnace. The only reason we know these stories is because these young men did not fall into being absorbed by the culture of their day. They were resolved to not budge. If we, we highlight verse 8, you turn there and look, the word resolved could also mean interpreted as set upon his heart. And I love how we've been talking about this idea from your head to your heart and how, again, that word resolved connects to this piece of heart. What's fascinating about the Bible is that if we look at the biblical authors of the Bible, the heart in many ways was much different. It's because the Israelites actually had no concept of the brain or even a word for it. Whereas we in our culture, in our context, we connect lots of things to our heads and to our hearts. So what they imagined is, they actually imagined the intellect and taking place within the heart. For example, you know with your heart. Your heart is where you understand things. Jeremiah 29 talks about how you will find me when you seek with all your heart. 
This idea of resolve, this idea of things deeply inside of our heart. John Eldridge sums this up on the significance of our heart. What more can be said? What greater cause could be made than this? To find God, you must look with all your heart. To remain present to God, you must remain present to your heart. To hear his voice, you must listen with your heart. To love him, you must love with all your heart. You cannot be the person God meant you to be, and you cannot live the life he meant you to live unless you live from the heart. Daniel decided in his heart. He had resolve. That we, we, we allow this communion with God and through the Holy Spirit to transform our hearts. That we, we foster that by prayer and worship and reading God's word. That God can, can move our hearts, can create in us a pure heart, a clean heart. That we, that we allow, as, as I've talked about, as we allow God to saturate our whole lives. This idea of changing from knowing about him to knowing him intimately. You see, Daniel and his friends were able to influence and impact their culture because they gave their whole hearts to God. Total devotion. You see, they, they, they changed their names. They, they tried to change the way they were thinking, didn't they? Yet, when it came to this idea of food, Daniel was not going to move. He was resolved to follow what God had asked him to do. If you look at the context of that food, first, it undoubtedly would not have been kosher. God gave specific ways to cook and to eat. And that food would not have followed that. Second, it probably was sacrificed to idols. And third, if you ate the king's food, it actually implied in that cultural system that you, in a way, were friends. That there was this friendship there. And so it was a big deal for Daniel and his friends. Yet, there was only four. Out of all those young men, there was only four that resolved. And, and I was thinking about that. How easy, and I'm sure many of us, myself included, have experienced that. How easy would it be just to fall in with those other young men or, or in with culture? I'm not in my home, Daniel could think. Maybe I don't have my parents there guiding me. Maybe I didn't have other people directing me and helping me keep me accountable. What's the big deal? Everybody else is doing it. He knows what's a, what he's supposed to do according to his tradition. But everybody else is going along with it. It must be okay. 
but he set it upon his heart to be resolved to the things that God had called him to. And I'm sure many of us have experienced this as well, this idea of the difference between resolutions and resolves. How many have ever tried to make a resolution? Right? It's hard. It's tough. And unfortunately, if we look at statistics, it doesn't usually last very long, does it? Myself included, when I'm faced with, with those, if we use that context of vegetables and faced with, with chocolate almonds, I'm not going to lie, the Costco chocolate almonds, whew, I'm going to choose those chocolate almonds because they just, they taste so good. It's because I've made a resolution that, ah, maybe I should only eat a few. But a few turns into a lot very quickly, doesn't it? Because I'm not resolved. I've made this resolution. And we see the difference as we look through the story of Daniel and his friends. They didn't make a resolution. They were resolved. And so what is that? What does that mean for us? How do we bring this kind of home? Daniel followed what God had told him, even if it meant losing his position, his friends, even his life. So how do we be resolved? And through this scripture, I thought of a couple things. First, plan in advance. When the heat is turned up in your life, when, when culture is flipped upside down, we don't topple because we've planned in advance. We've put things in place. We've, we've put accountability in place. That we're not willing to compromise in those situations. We know already that we've planned in advance. As we see Daniel, Daniel had already known that when they talk to me about eating that food, I'm not going to do it. And number two, we're going to end with these points. Checks and balances. It sounds practical, but what are the checks and balances? Here's just some things, and obviously there could be a lot more to this. Root yourself with other believers to help you stay on track. Have your own personal time in prayer and spend time with God. Deeply rely on the Holy Spirit. Spend time at Jesus' feet. Have a passion and commitment to God's word. Community with commitment. I've shared this story before, but in Ireland and Scotland, there's where the monasteries are, they've actually put little kind of shelters every 20 minutes along the journey, along the road between these monasteries. 
because they know that we need time alone with God along the way. They knew that community was so important that we cannot survive in solitude. We need each other. There is a rhythm to life together, as Bonhoeffer says. First, go to God alone so that we have something to bring back to community. This is part of lifestyle warfare. I know my community needs me. Everyone is coming over tonight, possibly, so I better get with God this afternoon. I want to contribute. I want to play a vital role. I want to be resolved for the things of Jesus.